0: It's really fun when you're on it, and especially when you have a great team. Everybody has something in their head that, you know, you put a pen in their hand, something is going to come out. May not be good, it may not be great, but it's them, right? And that can be powerful. I have never been in a room with so many incredibly talented people. I was blown away.
1: Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast. And hello, we're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna. On this episode, we'll be talking to Jamil Hyatt. Jamil grew up in Los Angeles. As the son of two cultures, born to a Pakistani father and a Mexican-American mother, he is a product of their angst, turmoil, love, and attention. His life as a successful writer, artist, maker, and designer has taken him to places far and abroad where he has absorbed other cultures, personal stories, and perspectives that influence his work today. He currently lives in Asia. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Excited to be here.
2: So thank you, Jamil, for joining us. And can you tell us a little bit briefly about you beyond what we just introduced? Uh, Why are you in Hong Kong and uh, what are you up to now?
0: Briefly, I was in the entertainment, themed entertainment industry for the past 25 years. Recently, actually next week is my retirement from that. So I've been writing. I live with my wife here in Hong Kong and it was brought to Hong Kong because she is an Imagineer and she's actually working on a Disney project right now. So that's where I've landed, and that's where we plan to make home is General Asia area.
1: But let's go back a little bit and um, tell us about themed entertainment.
0: So I think I have to, if I tell you about it, I have to tell you kind of my career beginnings and how I got involved in it, because that's what I know. So themed entertainment is a whole industry that is involved with theme parks and scenic shops and museums and all kinds of different things that are very, you know, involve the arts. So there's always, you know, you walk into a museum, for example, and there's displays or murals or things like that. There's always artists behind all of that. There's design behind that. And going further, theme industry, more so the theme parks, Universal, et cetera, even Ocean Park here in Hong Kong and Disney, are all very involved with design there's construction there's art there's there's so many things involved in that industry and my role within that industry was as a sculptor and a production designer and I worked within that industry for the last 25 years and as an imagineer for the last 7 years almost 8 years
1: That's super cool So who is an imagineer what is Walt Disney imagineering
0: Okay, so Imagineering was formed about roughly almost 60 years ago by Walt Disney, of course. It started as basically him looking out in Los Angeles at, you know, Griffith Park, which is a park right there, just Burbank, between Burbank and Hollywood, and he's like, he would look at the trains all the time at this little park and thought about making this something bigger so that his children and others people's children could come and just enjoy this larger-than-life environment, if you will. So Imagineering grew from that, and he brought together people that were animators and designers and fabricators and painters and muralists and all kinds of different people that were involved in the arts in one way or another. And they came up with this idea for a park. So Imagineering came from that. So the idea came about that the two words of imagination and engineering Although we're not so much engineers as much as design based, and that's where the word came from. So Imagineering develops theme parks for Disney all over the world, whether it's Paris, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Disneyland, Disney World, and then also the attractions. Uh, We also do the shows, all of that. So it's down to even the architectural details on a building Someone has to think of that crack that runs alongside a building or the colour of blue that's on the castle. All those types of things, Imagineers kind of come up with that in a super collaborative process.
2: I guess it's like taking the theatrical space and just making it into a a larger space that is a whole entire environment, right? So it's a little bit more immersive. And I think also you'd have to, you've got to think about the long term so it's not only... I think the difference between live theatrical entertainment and this themed entertainment is themed entertainment is permanent, right? So you've got to take into consideration that the materials that you use and everything that you're working with has to have stay the course. Did you have to learn that on the job in terms of, you know, figuring out how to make things last for the long term?
0: So that's that's a really good question because a lot of people don't understand that. That is the biggest difference of course from temporary to something that's going to be sustainable for 25, 35, 45 years or longer. And so it's a hard thing to learn all of that. So that's why we have, we have so many different Imagineers and so many categories, if you will. So there's some people that are just conceptual design and will come up with this amazing, beautiful sketch and it's just over the top, just lavish. And it's something that you can imagine Walt Disney would have looked at himself, and go, oh my God, build it. And then I'm the type of person that comes and says, Yeah, that's not buildable like that. So, <laughs> you know, and then you have construction managers who are more involved in the details of working with the different building departments, whether it's Hong Kong or in Orlando or Los Angeles. And then so you have a very collaborative, not just within Imagineering, but also with. Construction companies, vendors that build the scenery, the sets, the building departments, and then also engineering firms that are outside who are going to tell you this I beam needs to go here. So then, as an imaginary, you need to figure out, oh my God, I didn't realize that I beam is going to be like a foot thick. So now I have to come up with some different type of a design to create that, bring that into the environment so that it still looks creatively like it was meant to be there and it's hidden in one manner or another. So we're kind of experts at hiding things that are very permanent and have to be there in the building. And that goes all the way down to simple systems such as air conditioning. You know, you don't think about that, but you don't want to walk into a cave and see a giant air diffuser blowing air conditioning on you or heat on you, right? You, so you hide those things. That's actually a big part of it that's really fun, too. Is trying to figure out how do you disguise those elements.
2: So your alternate title could be Master of Disguise.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I think so.
2: <laughs> and I guess the process then takes a long time. Like it's it's how long does a project say if you're designing a certain environment? How long is that process in terms of months or years?
0: Oh, it's it's years. A typical project runs five to seven years larger attractions. Some of the attractions that I've been on. For example, I worked on Shanghai, Disney, and on the Pirates Attraction, which was there, Sunken, the Sunken Treasure, Battle for the Sunken Treasure. And that one, we started years ago working with the Chinese government, you know, our executives and stuff, trying to figure out how do we do this? What's the deal? And then doing the groundbreaking because you have soggy wetlands. So before you even think about it, they have to pump the water out and put I think there were over 10,000 pilings put into the ground just to create a foundation just to have concrete come up. So that takes years to do, years and years. And the project from design beginning, which is what we call blue sky, to the final opening, drop drop the rope for the, the clients to come in to guess, is typically about five years in that process, though.
1: I find this like going from zero to a big project thing. It's fascinating. And just thinking of everything that goes in, it's just, I don't know. It's fun. I like it.
0: (laughs) Actually, it is. It's really fun when you're on it. And especially when you have a great team. I've been lucky in my career in that I met my wife now, Hilsia, basically on our project. She was the architect and I was a production designer. So the last two gigantic projects we've worked on together and travelled the world working together. So it's made it even more fun for me, I would say. You know, I'm lucky in that respect. So we were in Shanghai together, LA together, Orlando together, and now we're back here in Hong Kong together. So for me, it's been really, really, really good. I've been really lucky in that respect, for sure.
2: How is your multicultural background and your history of who you are as a person? Because I, I, we've had a bit of a chat prior to this. How's that manifested in your artistic career or in your career? What's that brought to the table for your career?
0: I think it's been twofold. First off, I kind of grew up just on the other side of East LA. And I grew up in, you know, a semi-tough neighbourhood and my family life was, you know, that's a whole story, but it was pretty rough. So when I was a kid, I didn't think of myself. I, I knew I was an artist. I knew I had this inside of me, a writer, an artist, a painter, a sculptor. But I was never shown how to express that beyond what I was in front of me. So when I got older and started trying to figure out, well, what I'm going to do with my life through college, right? Everyone's like, don't do that. You're going to be a waiter the rest of your life. We all hear that. It's ridiculous. I said, no, I'm going to do it. So part of being coming up in those neighborhoods and that culture of the Latin culture, and then also my dad being Pakistani, fairly strict household. It kind of, it, it forced me to be a little tougher inside. So I was a little more impervious, I would say, to all the obstacles, especially a kid coming from kind of the streets, if you will, to an extent, and then trying to make it in this industry. So anytime somebody would put up a hurdle, I just kind of jumped over that hurdle or figured a way around it. And it also forced me to, being a minority, to encourage, as I got more involved and became a lead and then a director, etc., to bring people of color, people, women, up, smaller, more in minority groups, my gay friends, my trans friends, whomever was more fringe to bring them into this industry and mentor them along the way, because I know the challenges from my own cultural background and growing up where I was, how difficult it was for me. And so that has allowed me to encourage other people and then on the other aspect of it it's also I'm very proud of who I am as a person of color and someone from two different very different backgrounds. so I'm always trying to mentor or or teach other people about where I come from you know and and just as a person, and then they'll start to ask, well, what's your name mean where how did you get that from a you know a me a Mexicana mom and you know, so then it brings in, then I can introduce them to who I am and where I'm from. And that's really cool for me. That's super important in my career and in helping others as well.
1: So going through what you've done, I see like you started in more like the visual arts part and then kind of faded into the the theme entertainment, I guess, first doing some kind of sculptural work for floats and stuff. And then you're coming back to a more... Well, as I see it from my personal experiences, like more of solo work and then group work and then back again to more solo work. How do you transition that? And how does it affect, like, it's two worlds in the art world, but they're kind of different on how you approach your expression.
0: So I don't look at myself. A lot of people, first off, I don't ever label myself. And to me, labels are just... Rubbish, right? Especially coming from that background, right? How do you how do you put yourself on a census, or how do you describe yourself on a to someone? Oh, I'm Pakistani, Mexican American, growing up in East LA, and they don't know. Yeah, my dad was Muslim, my mom was Catholic. I'm atheist. I, what there is no label to that, right? So myself, I I paint, I sculpt, I write, I played music when I was a kid. I just my brain was in organic free flow. And I always felt that I was not one particular thing. Although I did start as a sculptor and painter, and that's where my background actually is. My my degree is in studio arts with the emphasis on sculpture. But I've always incorporated words, and words have always been powerful because it's easy thing to do. If you don't have paint or a brush or a tool to sculpt, you can get a piece of paper and a pencil and you can write something. And that's that's simple that's 101 you, everybody has something in their head that you know you put a pen in their hand something is going to come out may not be good it may not be great but it's them right and that can be powerful so i've always incorporated words into my art and my painting and so it's just kind of for me a very natural transition to flow between doing work individually and then also using those words my own creative energy to kind of manage a project of a thousand people because I'm very good at that as well. I'm, I'm not, although I was incredibly introverted as a kid, I'm a super extrovert now and not sure how that happened, but it just happened along the way. (laughs) And, you know, and so I think for me personally, I've never had a problem with that transition. It's just been very, very natural.
2: In terms of your you know, upbringing and, and you've obviously made uh, your career a successful one. Is there something, you know, because I think from, you know, what you're expressing that your your youth could have gone the other way. It could have gone in a very negative way. And what do you think that was within you that set you on a, on a more positive path? if you didn't have people that were necessarily supporting your your creativity? Because that's a lot of children's, I think their creativity can be crushed by the people around them or whatever, and they never get that opportunity. So you forged a path through that. And what do you think that was? Was that innate in you or was there other external circumstances?
0: That's so hard. And I, you know, I think about that all the time and I write so much poetry about it. And the book novel I'm writing now is kind of cathartic and Having me come to terms with that—it's such a hard question because I was bullied so badly when I was a kid. I I weighed about 120 pounds, same height, super skinny kid, and I would just get picked on every. Going to school was trauma for me. I I mean, and especially as a creative person, typically we're we're more timid and interest, you know, introverted, if you will, until we don't. We're not right? Until you hit the stage or whatever you do. I could have easily gone another route. I mean, I saw a lot of bad stuff in my life. I've seen, you and I have briefly talked about this and I'll, I'll be, I'm very open about it. My uncles were all in prison. They all did hard time. Uh, I've seen a lot of guns and drugs and a lot of, I've seen people overdose. I've seen people die. I've seen a lot of bad things right in front of me. And this is not on a TV screen, you know? And As an artist and as a creative person, as a softer, more gentle person, which I was, it toughens you up. But at the same time, for me personally, I was always still in touch with seeing that and saying, I can't do that. I just, I I think it was more innate. I think I realized I just cannot do that. It it's crushing. And there's times when you think about it because you see money. I mean, you see bags of money sometimes. It's It's a crazy world and that temptation is always there. But as an artist, as a creative person, you feel that that doesn't touch your soul. You know, even as a kid, I just knew that I knew inside me, deep inside, that I was going to make or break as an artist in one way or another. I just was. And I. no one really told me I could do it. No one. I just felt it always. You know, and so I, I shied away. Even though I did my, I've done some bad things. You know, I've gone down that road a little bit, but I always said, okay, I'm going back, and I I always made my way back. Luckily, so here I am.
1: <laughs> I feel like a lot of resilience, this flexibility, and like constant juggling things and coming back to to your zero, to your zone, and what you wanted to do
2: in my opinion, for the many people that I've worked with around this world and and I've encountered, even people in performing arts or not, or more in sort of visual arts, an artist is an artist, whether they get paid for it or not. And they will do that, whether they get paid for it or not. And so if that was innate in you to be an artist, then that then becomes your path, whether Even if you were tempted by money or anything like that, I I often see, and especially during this pandemic time, I see people who are artists and they continue to create, they continue to do things, they continue, and they're not getting paid for it anymore. But then there's the the genre that is more, say, if I say on stage, performers. So they perform and and that is another kind of role, but not necessarily an artist where they're continually behind the scenes creating. And I think... For me, I feel there's more, there's more and more a differentiation in that in terms of who's a performer or a person that's in the industry, that is in the industry there for the, for, the for, for one reason and then the true artists that happen to get paid for what they do and amazing, but even if they didn't, they'd continue along the path. And I think that's what you're doing now, right? You're now doing your own stuff, not necessarily getting paid for it yet, but you're, continue, you're fortunately in a position now to be back in that artist realm to create as you wish, right?
0: Right, exactly. I think that's exactly true. I think it's if you are an artist, rather than looking, you don't look for the money. I 100% agree with that. You know, I've never looked for the money. I've been lucky in that. I think my creativity shines and my ability to convey that. And so that's attracted people to me who luckily is, you know, allowed me to have a 25 year career. I've never been unemployed. In 25 years, I've never been an out-of-work artist, which is pretty incredible to say. That's, that's an amazing career. You know, that doesn't happen. And so I'm um, knock on wood, lucky. But I think it goes back to you have to believe in yourself. Look at people are always going to tell us no, or you can't, or I'm sorry, but, you know, there's always those terms that are so negative that they can crush you if you don't have the energy to like, okay, forget it, you know, I'll I'll fall on my ass a million times, but I'll still get back up a million and one. And that's, that's how you just do it. Right. But yeah, I think it's part of who we are. I think that's important to know.
1: I just want to tell to whoever's listening that even though what Anna says is true and will work for our merit and for free, because it's part of our need and I don't know, at least it keeps my soul alive to keep working and doing creative work. Please don't abuse us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
2: that's totally true no but you see it from time to time again because people you know especially when now and in the world there's a lot of corporations who fund performing arts and they're fundamentally on a different level and we've had this discussion with a couple of other people Anna I think and and so they don't understand the passion and the involvement that certain people is and there has to be this it has to be equal, the creativity and the... the we ha- It is a business, so you're going to have to fund it and you're going to have to make it a profitable venture. So they, they can't... One cannot exist without the other, but there is a certain equality that needs to be made. And a lot of the times if people are making shows where where the money is the driving force you'll find that especially in this region as you may see jamil they don't tend to be successful right <laughs> because they're not placing value on the creative they're not placing value on the creative process or the time it needs to take to create something and that's something that you've been fortunate in disney because they take all the time they need to get that project done in the way and the with the ethos of which disney live by and there's not many other companies that compare in terms of taking that time, they value that creative time.
0: Absolutely, they do, and they they really they encourage it. But it's it's exactly like you said; it is a business still, and so that's why there's also accountants and planners, etc., and all of that. And they're also imagineers because you know the business of imagineering also takes management of imagineering. So the creative hand has to shake hands with the business hand. Right. In everything we do. But to that to that point, you know, especially in the world of Instagram and Twitter and influencers and all social media, like you said, corporations are so eager to get on board with the visuals and the performing arts and and new sounds and music and everything because it improves their brand. But it's it's a tricky balance. You know, it's really a tricky balance because if they don't respect the artist, you know, and what they're doing, but at the same time, the artist doesn't understand the business, then you have a breakage, you know? Yeah, I have been lucky with that.
1: So what would you say is the thing you like the most about your job?
0: Well, right now, because I'm not Imagineer anymore as of this next week, right? So the most, right now, I'm, I'm incredibly happy. And as crazy as it sounds, the whole COVID and pandemic has been kind of a blessing for me. And, and I don't mean that in a beanie way for all the millions of people it's affected in a, in a horrible way because there's a lot of pain behind it. But for me personally, it's allowed me to let go and focus on my creative energy. So I wake up and, and my favorite part of my day is I go and have my coffee. And I'm inspired by just people walking by in front of the coffee shop. And I think about their story. And some people are looking up and happy. And some people are they're looking down and sad. And there's a person with the energy and running to work and running away from work. And I get inspired by their energy. And I'll write a poem that's like three pages long, or a thought that's like, you know, I'm gonna put in my next book or something. And I love that. I love that I can focus on like we talked before I don't have to focus on the money I'm focused on my thought and my creative energy and the energy that I'm getting from these people I love that part of my day and that's my job now is just to create you know which is I mean who can say that not too many people
2: yeah that's a great place to be so tell us about the book that you're writing now then
0: so the book I'm writing now is a novel actually I'm writing two things because i like I said, I'm very organic. So I'm working on a screenplay uh, <laughs> and I'm working on a novel. So the novel is a kind of, I would describe it as 16 Candles meets Clockwork Orange. <laughs> so <Okay>. it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's dark, but funny. And it's a big uh, about Yeah, <laughs> it's a big stretch. But it's about my youth from about 16 till about 21, semi-autobiographical. And it's about the rough time of growing up but also, bittersweet moments in there. It's about the trauma that I've gone through and all of the pain, but also the realization of becoming a, a man, a grown up, an artist. So that's what I'm working on right now. I'm loving how it's coming out. Uh, I share it with my mom as I write, and that's a little rough because she and I have had a strained relationship, which has actually helped me creatively. And it's been difficult, but she really loves it as well. She loves that I'm able to convey the pain and the trauma and bring it to life and still end it on a positive note. And then the screenplay that I'm working on is a love story. And it's based in Asia. It's actually based in Shanghai. And it's about American expat who's a designer living there. Ex-addict falls in love with a Shanghainese woman. And it's a story of addiction and love. And uh, reconciliation, and so I'm working on that as well.
1: Now, what about your previous book?
0: So my previous book, yeah, it's a poetry book. It's called Life Edited: Pain, Pleasure, Perspective, and it is available online. You can get it on Amazon and and uh, some bookstores around. And it is very personal, poetic journey, spoken word about my love, uh, my life, and it's the three sections. Like I said, it's about the pain of my life. There's a lot of poetry in there about love and and pleasure, and then also my thoughts and perspectives on things in the world today. And uh, it's it's very, as the title says, edited. So it's I've tried to convey raw feelings and images in the least amount of words possible, and without kind of a poetry or rhyme. So it's very different from what you would typically think is a poetry book. I, I would imagine. I'm very proud of it. Yeah, and I've kind of been working on and off on that book for about twenty years. to Be honest.
2: Well, you're just down the road from uh, Peel Street Poetry, the gang that hangs out at Peel Street. So you should uh, yep. head down there and and get some of I your did. readings out there. So, you I did already? Did
0: yeah. I I was there a couple of weeks ago, and that was the first time I'd ever done a reading and done an open mic. So that night was their poetry slam, their fifteenth anniversary. Um, first off. I have never been in a room with so many incredibly talented people. I was blown away.
2: There are amazing poets in Hong Kong. They are, Incredible. are amazing. I know a bunch Incredible. of them. Yeah.
0: Wow. Mm. I was like, I was just wide-eyed. I was shocked. I was like, I can't do this.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but but Henrik, who's the, the MC, uh, I had signed up and they were going through their process. He called me to be the first person on the open mic. And I was like, okay. So I got up and I did it, and uh, it, it felt so. There was so much freedom. I just felt so loved in the room. Ah, I, I can't wait to go back. The next few weeks after things open again, I'm going back and I'll I'll be doing more readings there.
2: Yeah, no, and I think that's that's what's great about that place. It's such an inclusive environment, and and people oh, are yeah. welcomed just to share. And I know Henrik quite well, so uh, oh, yeah, cool. it's good. I'm glad
1: you. I'm glad you went down there.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Super awesome. It was great. Loved it.
1: So do you want to share uh, with the audience, our audience, <laughs> your website or where can people look more of, well, Amazon and then uh, where else can they look for your work?
0: Well, right now I, on my webpage, which is www.jamilhyatt.com. It's just kind of new, brand new site. So I'm starting to fill it in, if you will. But right now the book is on Amazon and pretty soon I will be available in other bookstores, Barnes & Noble and also other bookstores internationally and online. So I'll start releasing that information on the website as as those deals happen.
2: <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jamil. We really appreciate hearing about you and your life and your work and uh, what an incredible career and, and an amazing person. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Awesome.
2: Please write a review on our podcast whenever you listen to our podcast. and Let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life by visiting our website at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on social media and leave your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, or YouTube. We really want to thank David Zaya for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Sherrota, who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life Podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world.